grace and peace. He is risen. Amen. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, Isaiah 52 and 53, and we're going to read on from starting in Isaiah 52 verse 13. And then on into the end of chapter 53, we're going to kind of narrow in on, on Isaiah 53, verse 10 here this morning, Isaiah 53, 10, but we're going to read all of Isaiah's last and final servant song here in Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. Well, welcome to Veritas Community Church on this Easter Sunday. We are so glad to be here together this morning, celebrating what we celebrate uh, every Sunday, really, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we just do it with a little more style here on Easter Sunday. Um, if you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you're here. Thank you for, for joining us this morning. I hope you feel warmly welcomed by us this morning. If you're interested, uh, we actually have a gift for you at the, the welcome table out here in what we, this area we call out here the Great Hall. Uh, we have a bag there with some goodies. There's a, a book and some uh, a mug, some coffee there. We'd, we'd love for you to grab one of those and take them home with you uh, just as a way of us uh, saying thank you for joining us this morning. Now, when I say that we're celebrating here this morning what we celebrate every Sunday, I'm telling the truth. We're, we're kind of like Pinky in the Brain, uh, if you remember that, that wonderful children's cartoon from decades ago. Uh, and every, every night when the, the scientists would leave the lab, Pinky, the mouse, would ask Brain, the, the kind of maniacal leader of the duo, the other mouse with the big brain, he'd ask him, what are we going to do tonight, uh, Brain? And, and he said, every, what we do every night, Pinky, we're going to try to take over the world. Well, you never really have to ask what we're trying to do here on Sunday morning. We're trying to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ Sunday in and Sunday out here. That's what we do every Sunday. And the reason that we celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ Sunday in and Sunday out here is because the gospel is the beating heart of Christianity. It is, it is central and crucial to the Christian faith. It is what defines and differentiates the Christian faith from everything else. Uh, every, every other worldview, every other religion, every other belief system out there, every other religion and worldview has at its core advice or imperatives or laws or instructions or commands, some sort of self-construction wherein you make your own way in life, things you must do to achieve enlightenment or human flourishing or heaven or paradise or whatever. But Christianity is fundamentally different. At the center of our faith is news. That's part of the definition of the word gospel. It means news, good news, glad tidings. What the entirety of our faith is based on is not something that needs to be done by us, but news about something that has already been done for us. Not something you must do, but something that has been done for you. Not something that you need to achieve, but something that has been achieved for you on your behalf for your good. And this good news is what Jesus Christ has done in human history for our salvation. And this good news is what we want to look at with simplicity and Lord willing clarity this morning. So if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture, let's listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God here in Isaiah 52, 13, 
through 53.12, kind of narrowing in here on chapter 53, verse 10. But we'll read the whole song here. Listen to what Isaiah wrote and prophesied concerning the Lord Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may your gospel be declared this morning, in the power of the resurrection, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Glorify your Son here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this past Friday, we started a a short three-sermon series on Isaiah 52 and 53, and we began by looking at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 9, leading up to just our verse this morning. And this whole passage is actually a a song or a poem, and it's a song that actually belongs with three other songs in the book of Isaiah. We call these the four servant songs of Isaiah, and these 
four servant songs make up a kind of playlist or a, a concept album, if you will. And the central theme is the person and work of the coming Christ, of the coming Messiah. Isaiah, the song's writer, was a prophet in 8th century BC, and he was called and charged by God to preach a message of judgment and salvation in Judah. And he did. He preached a message of judgment of God, but, but, but not without hope. He also preached a message of, of God's grace and kindness triumphing over judgment and getting the last word. And in fact, this message of God's grace and kindness so resounds in Isaiah here that some people actually call the book of Isaiah a fifth gospel. There are four gospels in the New Testament, and and some people actually call Isaiah of the Old Testament a fifth gospel. Of course, Isaiah uh, wrote and prophesied 700 years uh, before the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, and yet he still nonetheless preached the gospel of Jesus Christ with such clarity, with such beauty, with such force. And perhaps nowhere is the gospel preaching of Isaiah more cogent than in this last of the four servant songs here in Isaiah 52 and 53, where Isaiah describes in vivid detail the execution of the Lord Jesus and his exaltation three days later. His vicarious death and his victorious resurrection are both attested to here. Now, as I've said, we've already covered much of the chapter this past Friday, and so we're going to kind of limit our time this morning to a a single verse that beautifully summarizes the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. And and I just want to look at verse 10 here, where we see so beautifully the good news of what Christ has done for us. We see here that Jesus was exited and that Jesus was exited. He was executed and exalted. So first, we find here that Jesus was executed. Jesus was executed for us, God, for our... Our verse this morning starts out by saying, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And here, Isaiah speaks of Jesus' execution in the startling terms. He was crushed. Crushed. He was utterly... And he was pulverized. And you might think seeing execution in that phrase that is reading a, into it a bit much, but, but remember uh, to be, you know, to, 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 to speak of his crushing here, Isaiah is reiterating what he's already said will have Jesus with a different twist. Five, he says, but he was pierced for our he was crushed for equities. He furthermore goes on eight and nine to say that this was from the living, that they made his grave with it and with a rich man in his death. He says in verse 11, after us this morning, that he heaped out his soul on death. So we're talking death here by another name. And not just death, but a particularly brutal death. He was crushed, broken, executed. He here, he was crushed by God, no less. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This crushing is by God's mind. This is God's doing. Historically, there's been a lot of discussion concerning Jesus as, as people look some uh, human source to blame. And doubtless, there were many people in, we just read the Gospels, and Judas will find the Sanhedrin, the crowd, Rogers, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and more others involved. However, they are all merely instrumental causes in Christ's crucifixion. The paras, the uncaused cause, is the Lord God himself. And yet Isaiah's language in in the Hebrew here is actually more startling even still. It's more startling than even that. 
the ESV here, my, my translation doesn't do justice uh, when he says that when it translated as the will here. It, it means that, but it means more than that. Perhaps you have a tradition that says the Lord was pleased to crush him, or it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him, or the Lord delighted in his crushing. The word translated as will or pleasure or delight here speaks of the desire of one's heart. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it is used to speak of the delight and desire that married couples have for each other. It is unequivocally speaking of the Lord's pleasure and delight to do this thing, to crush Jesus. And baffling, isn't it? If we were the servants first in 42.1, the third actually there of Jesus, that he is chosen one in the one in whom his soul delights. The Father gives us a window into here. It says that his whole being delights in Jesus. And, and we've seen this recently in our society. We've been going through Mark's gospel in our time here at Veritas. And not long ago, we came to the baptism of Jesus, didn't we? And at Jesus' baptism, we see a revelation of the Father and the Son and the relationship we've had for eternity uh, before creation on into eternity past. And we see here the Father say that Jesus is his beloved Son. He delights in Jesus. He states that he, has, he is overwhelmingly pleased with us. He delights in Jesus. And so why on earth could the Father be here to have been pleased to crush his most beloved Son? Why do such a thing? For those who are not Christians here this morning, why would God do such a thing? What kind of God would take place such brutality? Why would he let this happen? And be pleased. Now something about that may seem to you at first is, is God a monopoly deity exploring of others? But this phrase tells us very clearly why God took pleasure in crushing his son. Look here. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. When you see the word soul there, don't think about like the immaterial spiritual part of a person, the, the, the inner person. Often when that word is translated, it just means like a person's being. It's the, the whole being of a person. When his whole being makes an offering for guilt. And here, Isaiah takes us to the temple. This language of guilt offering is language of temple sacrifice. If you were to go to Leviticus 5, you would find there instructions for something called the guilt offering as a specific sacrifice to be offered in the temple. Whenever someone would sin and incur guilt upon themselves, they were to bring a spotless ram from their flock, and that ram was to be offered as an atoning sacrifice that would die in their stead. So that the perpetrator could be forgiven their sin and the ram's spot could be counted them. Well here, what we find Isaiah saying is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God has delivered up his spotless son to be an atoning sacrifice for us so that we could be forgiven. His spotless record of sinless perfection could be counted toward us guilty sinners. This is the good news of Christianity. All of us, have fallen short glory and perfection of God. We have not loved him with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as elves. We have failed to keep God's perfect standards and laws and are thus rightly condemned as criminals before him. You might protest that claim. You might think that you're a pretty good person, but friend, realize that you have failed to even keep and abide by your own standards. 
You have not always done what is right, even in your own eyes. Your own conscience condemns you. And if you have failed to even keep your own standards, how much more have you failed to keep the standards of a perfect and holy God? And so when you stand before him on the last day, in and of yourself, you are guilty and condemned. And yet this is why it was the Lord's good plan and pleasure to crush his son. And why it was Jesus' good plan and pleasure to be crushed to satisfy both God's perfect justice and his pleasure to forgive guilty sinners. You see, God is perfectly just. You, you, you know, the problem that some people, some of us have with Christianity is that we don't understand how a loving God could judge people, but that's not actually the problem from heaven's perspective. The problem from heaven's perspective is how a just God could forgive and receive guilty sinners and still be just. He is just. He is a just judge who will not let crimes against him and his creatures go unpunished. He would not be good if he did that. Just as we would not consider a judge here in the city of Dayton to be a good judge if he were lax and let guilty people go free. If there was a lax judge in our beloved city who let guilty criminals go free, we would rightly be outraged. Justice must be administered. People must be charged and convicted and condemned of their crimes. And so it is with our God and King. He is a just and holy King, and so he must get justice for sin and lawlessness. But he is also a kind, gracious, loving, merciful King who takes pleasure and delight in forgiving the guilty. He longs to and loves to forgive sinners, and the crushing of his Son makes it possible for God to do just that and to still maintain his perfect justice. And not only is the Father pleased in the crushing of the Son for those reasons, but so is the Son. Look at what the next phrase says. He shall see his offspring. The beginning of verse 11 completes the thought here. He says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You can easily see here how these two statements go together, communicating that what Christ sees is his offspring, and what he feels when he sees his offspring is satisfaction, happiness, joy. And, and, and here, offspring is, is not to be taken literally. The scriptures often speak of offspring in, in a spiritual sense, and that's true here. Christ didn't marry. He didn't have children. But by his giving himself up as a guilt, uh, as a guilt offering, he has produced a people, a family, an offspring, and he does have beloved children in that sense. And when he looks at those for whom he was sacrificed as a guilt offering, when he sees their guilt being taken away, when he sees them living in freedom of forgiveness and being relieved of their guilt that so weighed them down, when he sees them being relieved of their consciences condemning them, when he sees them reconciled to his God and Father, that just makes him happy. That satisfies him. Like the father, he looks upon those safe and secure by a sacrifice, and he is delighted. He takes pleasure in it. All of us in this room, we know what it is to have our consciences condemn us. We know what it is to be weighed down by the guilt of sin. We, we all know that we are condemned and guilty within ourselves, but only those who trust in Jesus, who are his spiritual offspring, know what it is to be freed from that burden. 
only those who are his offspring know what it is to be forgiven because he sacrificed himself as a guilt offering in our place. If you would know that freedom and forgiveness this morning, all you must do is place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, coming to him and saying, I know I've made a mess of my life. I am guilty before God. My own conscience condemns me. But I want to be one of your offspring. Take my sins and guilt and give me your spotless perfection. If you come to Christ or have come to Christ in such a way with sincerity and belief, you will be one of those whom he looks upon with satisfaction and delight. But then as we know, what we are celebrating this morning that the story does not end with Christ being offered as a guilt offering. You can come to him today and pray and prayer and belief because he is alive. He looks upon and is satisfied with his offspring because he has been raised from the dead in victory. Look with me next at how Jesus was exalted by God. Now the phrase we just looked at, he shall see his offspring, would be confusing if Jesus was still dead and in the grave. Seeing and being satisfied is something only experienced by the living. And so in this, we find a veiled reference to what the next phrase makes abundantly clear. Listen, he shall prolong his days. Remember, he died. He was cut off from the land of living. He poured out his soul to death. He was pierced through. He was laid in a grave. He was crushed. He was executed. But now he shall prolong his days. And this must be what Isaiah was speaking of in the beginning of his song here in Isaiah 52, 13. Then he began the song by saying, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. The servant will be exalted. And yet, Isaiah goes on to describe his gruesome and brutal suffering and death, his utter humiliation, yet the servant is exalted because the story doesn't end with suffering and death and humiliation. He died, but he's also raised. He was executed, but he's also exalted. He shall prolong his days. And some biblical scholars, I was reading this last week, they say he can't be talking about resurrection. How would Isaiah know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ 700 years before the fact? And they said he's not even using the language of resurrection. If he meant resurrection, he would say resurrection. And of course, he doesn't say resurrection here. This language of prolonging days, however, is Old Testament language for having a long life. Uh, perhaps one of the most well-known places that you see this kind of language used is a, 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 a favorite verse of parents, Exodus 20, 12. It's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's a memory verse in our house. And it's, it's, it's the first commandment with a promise, isn't it? It's honor mom and dad, have a long, blessed life. And here, Isaiah is saying that Jesus is going to have a long life. And so if he doesn't mean resurrection here, then that's rather confusing, isn't it? Because Isaiah just said that Jesus would die on behalf of his people as a guilt offering. But now he's going to live a long, blessed life. That can only mean resurrection. And of course, 
he will prolong his days. That's putting it rather mildly when you actually consider it. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. As the Apostle said in in 1 Corinthians 15, we just read it earlier, in the resurrection, what is perishable puts on the imperishable. And this is what has happened with Christ. He has prolonged his days. He has put on what is imperishable. He will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. His days shall be prolonged forever and ever and ever. And I want you to consider, again, that this was foretold 700 years ago. 700 years before the fact. God foretold the death and resurrection of Christ With such clarity, 700 years before it took place, the Lord told us through this prophet that Christ would die and rise again. And then he did precisely what he said he would do. That's that's what's happening here. You know, I I used to play pool uh, at at a a pool uh, den or whatever. I can't remember what they're called. Uh, Here in the city in Linden Avenue with some friends of mine back in the day. And we were terrible. We didn't know what we were doing. But there were people there who were really good. And I was always really impressed by those people that could call like a particular ball in a particular hole. Because whenever I would make a ball in a hole, it was usually an accident. Uh, but they would, they would call a particular ball in a particular hole. And then sometimes some of these fools would even call like multiple ball, multiple hole shots. They would call their shots to a T and then do precisely what they said they were going to do. Well, that's what Jesus has done here with the prophecy of Isaiah concerning his death and his burial and his resurrection. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and then that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is offering evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's offering eyewitnesses. He's offering his own transformation. He's offering historical evidences. And among those pieces of evidence, he says that these things took place in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, This this must have been, Isaiah 53, must have been one such place that Paul had in mind. Because here, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is foretold with such clarity. In Isaiah 53, 5, it was foretold that Christ would be pierced. For our transgressions, and he was with nails in his hands and feet. In verse 8, it was foretold that he would be cut off from the land of the living and that he would be killed and executed and dead. And Christ was killed on a cross. It's a historical fact. In verse 9, he said that he would be buried, and he even foretold with specificity the manner of his burial that he would be buried with a rich man in his death. And after his death, a well-known wealthy man in Israel by the name of Joseph of of Arimathea came and buried Christ in a tomb that he purchased himself. Something Christ would have had no power over since he's a cold, dead corpse laying on the ground. And, and, And then moreover, most impressive, he foretold that his days would be prolonged that he would see and be satisfied, that on the third day after his death, he would be raised from the dead, triumphing over sin and death and all, and it was confirmed by an empty tomb and by eyewitness accounts. He called his shot to a T, and he did it with precision. 
that's a powerful piece of evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrection. One you, can, you should consider with all the others. But then, but then so what? You know, many have, have challenged the claims of, of Christianity on this point at times. Even if Jesus did rise from the dead, so what? What does some historical event 2,000 years ago have to do with us today, even if it is supernatural, even if it is true? What does this have to do with us? But that's just the thing. This was not some random historical event. It was a divine act through which God unleashed his perfect saving will upon the world. And that's why Isaiah writes here, immediately on the hills of his prophecy concerning the resurrection, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God's will for this world is that it would no longer be weighed down by the curse and wages of sin. God's will for this world is that it would no longer suffer under injustice and be enslaved by sin or bear the guilt of sin. His will for this world is that all things be made new, that his chosen ones be set free from sin, slavery, and guilt. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the launching point of that saving plan being unleashed on this world. It is the beginning of all sad things becoming untrue. It is the beginning of a new creation breaking into this old, broken down creation. It is the starting point for our stories being retold and ourselves being remade in wholeness. It is the means by which God plans to transform us in this world that he so loves. Some time ago, I came across an article entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. It was written by uh, a man named Matthew Paris in Time Magazine. And, and in it, Paris tells of a profound change he's noticing that comes through the spread of the gospel in Africa. He's, he's a worker in Africa. He does a lot of uh, good work there. Uh, but his article's tagline gives away his perspective on missionaries working in Africa. He says, missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. Like some atheists, Paris admits in this article that he used to think that, quote, if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But, he goes on, this doesn't fit the facts. Faith, he says, does more than support the missionary. It also is transferred to his flock. And this is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. He says, it confounds my beliefs. It stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and it has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. He goes on, as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, internal aid efforts. These alone, he says, will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The new birth is real. The change is good. You see, the new birth is real, and the change is good because the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is at work today in people's lives all over the world. The will of God is prospering in the hands of Jesus Christ.
as he is giving life, hope, joy, peace, transformation to people in such a way that the change is undeniable and it's unignorable. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is on display today all over the world. It's on display in this room as God has taken guilty sinners like us, the people of Veritas, and accomplished his saving, forgiving, transforming will in our lives. The gospel is not an empty word. It's not advice for something you need to do. It's news. It's powerful news of what Christ has done to forgive and free you and transform you. And you can see that here this morning as the will of God prospers in the hands of Jesus Christ in and among this people. This is what we've come to celebrate this morning. This is why we are rejoicing this morning. Jesus Christ has died, but Jesus Christ is risen. He was executed, but he's now exalted. He died vicariously in our place, but he is now victorious over death. He was crushed, but his days have been prolonged forever and ever and ever. Therefore, we are forgiven and freed from sin. We are his offspring. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come now to the table. We pray that this would be a clear demonstration and experience of the risenness of Jesus Christ, that he is alive today. May we commune with him by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for those here this morning that do not believe, that do not trust, that do not know you. And we pray that through this text, through the declaration of Jesus Christ being executed and exalted, that they would be effectually called into the kingdom of your beloved Son, that they would experience that freedom and forgiveness and transformation here this morning. We pray that you would exalt Jesus in our midst. We pray that we would celebrate with hearts full of joy here this morning because Jesus is alive. Glory and hallelujah. In his name we pray. Amen.